same thing with our constitution. It begins with this inclusive phrase, we the people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and uh, this of course, that's the preamble to the constitution. But if you read just a little further, article one, section two, just a few lines further in the constitution, this is mm -hmm. the section that defines who is and who is not covered by the constitution, who is and who is not included in this document. Mm -hmm. And it, it never mentions women, which is, is notable because if you read the entire constitution, you will find there are 51 gender specific male pronouns. One mm. he, him, and his, mm -hmm. who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the document. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire document. Second, it specifically excludes natives. Mm -hmm. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. That literally leaves, in 1787, white men. Mm -hmm. and technically, it was white landowning men who could vote. Mm -hmm. My name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Hi, friends. It is Leo WT here, friends. Um, we are here. It is Sunday, and it is time for conversations. I'm pretty pumped uh, because we have a uh, someone who I would consider a rock star. Uh, his name is uh, Mark Charles, and he's going to be chatting to us about uh, American history, his life experience as a dual citizen of the Navajo Nation and uh, as an American. And just for good flavor, we're going to throw some uh, spiritual in there. So I'm just getting this page shared on all of the Facebook pages possible. But while I do that, Mark, would you uh, want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, well, yate, Mark Charles, you know, yeah. Sinbakedana, Nishle, the Tohiglini Bashes Chin, Sinbakedana, Dashtero, Tedochini, Dashtanella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people with our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say What that means is I'm from the wooden shoe people. Um, my second clan, my father's mother is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father is also And then my fourth clan, my father's father is Tohichitni, which is the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge, I'm speaking to you from what's now known as Washington, DC. And these are the traditional land of the Piscataway. So I moved here with my family almost six years ago from the Navajo Nation. And the Piscataway are the nation that they've lived in this area. They've raised their families here. They've hunted here. They farmed here. They fished here. They were here long before Columbus got lost at sea and they are still here. So I want to just publicly acknowledge the continued presence of the Piscataway people. I want to publicly state how humbled and honored I am to be living on their lands. And I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. But uh, it's very good to be with you, Leo. Thanks for having me on the show today. 
Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Um, when I first saw your video uh, with Phil, I, I literally, before I was done watching the video, I found your email and it took me a couple chances to get through to your, uh, to your assistant. But once I finally did, I was so pumped that we could land, you know, land you as a guest. Cause in my world, uh, you would be what I would qualify as a rock star. Um, I've kind of always been like a person who has bent on social justice and spiritual spirituality and religion and stuff. So, so I was really excited to have you on. And actually, um, I think I, I mentioned this to you before, but we are, uh, I'm coming from you from next to Salamanca, New York, uh, which is one of, I think it's the only city in America that overlaps, uh, like, that parallel overlaps a, a reservation and my proximity to Salamanca has been something that really caused me to learn about Native American history in a way I didn't know before. Um, and, and I've been really grateful for that. So I think it was, I think it might've been your Ted talk where you listed the, the phone number where you can text and find out what land you're on. Is that, uh, I don't it's, not a, it's not a, a phone number, but there's a website and I can yes. actually put it in the chat with you. It's our people want to look it up. It's native dash land. Okay. CA. All right. And if you go to that website, you can type in your zip code, your, your address, your city, your state, and it will tell you um, some of the history of that land, what treaties were signed there, what languages were spoken, and then the people traditional to those lands. I want people, it's not the uh, final authority, but it's mm -hmm. a great place. The people who run the website do a lot of research into uh, the land and, and the history of that land. And so it's a great place where you can at least begin your research of, to know whose land you're living on. And yeah. No matter where you live in the United States, if you are living on North America, Turtle Island, you are on some Native Nations traditional land. Absolutely. I think it's very important that people know whose land that they're living on so that they can acknowledge and even begin to build a relationship with the people whose land they're sharing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I just connected with someone locally who is going to um, be available to do land acknowledgement um, introductions, like someone who's from this area and going to be able to do land acknowledgement introductions anytime that we have a public event. So I'm really, I made that connection like a week or so ago and I'm pretty excited about that. So um, I, I was telling you a little bit about this before we started, uh, and anybody who's watching this probably knows because I'm not a very quiet person and I'm not really subtle. Like I'm just kind of, you know, 100%, right? That's me. Um, and, and I've been talking about this for over a year now, especially in light of the George Floyd, um, of the George Floyd lynching, because really, uh, as everyone who's been a sentient human being knows, that really, it really kickstarted some things in the minds of some people who needed to be made uncomfortable in terms of their own levels of privilege. You know, it set, it set our country on fire, literally. Um, and I think that alongside of the phrase Black Lives Matter, like we have to, we have to distinctly say that. And we also have to realize, though, that there are multiple intersections of marginalization in our world and one of the biggest and and least talked about in my opinion is native american um identity and so i saw you talking about american history about how that plays out in our world today knowing you had a spiritual background and i was like yes let's have this conversation <laughs> um 
So I would love if you could, I, I posted the, your TED talk um, to the page, uh, to the conversations page so people can find that. So you don't have to recount it word for word, but um, I liked, I would like to use as a jumping off point, um, your explanation. If you want to talk a little bit about the doctrine of discovery and the phrase, we, the people, uh, because I think a lot of people don't understand the fundamental bedrock that we live on in America, you know? Yeah, well, thank you very much. So I'm the author of a book. It's called Unsettling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. My good friend, uh, Sungshan Ra, he and I co-authored this book. It's published through InterVarsity Press, which is a Christian publisher. Sungshan is a, um, a professor of theology. He was at North Park Seminary. Actually, he is, but he's moving next year to Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And uh, he and I have been doing a lot of work together. I I've been speaking about and writing about the doctrine of discovery for a long time. Mm -hmm. The 90 second elevator version of what it is, is it's, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic church, mm -hmm. um, written between 1452 and 1493. Mm -hmm. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, mm -hmm. those people are subhuman and their lands are yours to take. Mm -hmm. Now the challenge is, is this doctrine. So this is a dehumanizing doctrine, right? It, it's, yeah. it's the doctrine of discovering the, the first sentence of our book says you cannot discover lands already inhabited. Right, yep. you can steal those lands, you can conquer them, you can call them. You can't discover them unless your bias, your racial bias, says the people living there aren't fully human. Yes, and so the challenge is, is this doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of our world. Mm -hmm. So, President Joe Biden, for example, he loves to, he would say, quote the Declaration of Independence. And he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds great. That's not what it says. Yeah. What it says is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. And then it goes down because the Declaration of Independence is a list of grievances that the, that the colonies are responding to from the King of England. Mm -hmm. And 30 lines lower, it refers to natives as merciless Indian savages in the declaration, mm -hmm. making it very clear the reason they use this inclusive term all men is because they have a very narrow definition of who's actually human. Yes. Same thing with our constitution. It begins with this inclusive phrase, we the people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and uh, this of course, that's the preamble to the constitution. But if you read just a little further, Article 1, Section 2, just a few lines further in the Constitution, this is mm -hmm. the section that defines who is and who is not covered by the Constitution, who is and who is not included in this document. Mm -hmm. And it, it never mentions women, which is, is notable because if you read the entire Constitution, you will find there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns. One he, him, and his, mm -hmm. who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the document. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire document. Second, it specifically excludes natives. Mm -hmm. And third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. That literally leaves, in 1787, white men. 
Mm -hmm. Technically, it was white landowning men who could vote. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, President Obama, when he was giving his final State of the Union and he was acknowledging some of the divisiveness that he and his administration had encountered during his eight years in office, Mm -hmm. and he was calling our nation, he used that State of the Union address to call our nation to uh, a new politic. Mm -hmm. And he quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people, our Constitution begins with these three simple words. Words, he said, we've now come to recognize mean all the people. Yeah. Well, that sounds beautiful, right? He got a lot of applause for that line. But I've studied the Doctrine of Discovery. I've studied U.S. history. I've looked at the Founding Fathers. I've looked at Abraham Lincoln. I've looked at the 18th century. I've looked at our history. And there is no point in U.S. history where we collectively decided we the people now means all the people. Mm -hmm. The founding fathers clearly did not intend to include women or natives or African black or black people in we the people. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln, who was a blatant white supremacist and a genocidal president towards native peoples did not believe we the people meant all the people. Yeah. As good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we the people meaning all the people. Yeah. And President Trump, does not believe we the people means all the people. This was just four years ago. Yeah. And so I'm I'm saying to, I'm looking at the TV, listening to President Obama speak. This was in 2016. And I, I said, we've never made that decision. Mm-hmm. And that was the, I ran for president in 2020 as an independent candidate. Mm-hmm. And that was the theme of my campaign. Yeah. Was I said, let's, instead of, misquoting our founding documents are pretending they say something they don't actually say let's actually make the changes necessary yeah so we the people means all the people and if we're going to do that and i i said this throughout my campaign because right a lot of people believe that our constitution is inclusive yeah yeah so they i do. challenge people and this was actually during COVID. i said if you truly believe our constitution is inclusive i said i i challenge you to get on a zoom call with 20 people diverse racially mm-hmm. gender sexuality mm-hmm. and orientation all just completely diverse group of people and read out loud the constitution mm-hmm. you will be both embarrassed and shocked yeah at how quickly the language becomes very exclusive mm. and that continues throughout the entire document yeah. Joe Biden has just been talking about his 100 day plan to get 100 million shots out, which, you know, I'm glad we're working on that and we actually surpassed that goal. My 100 day plan was to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. Mm-hmm. I actually have a draft of the Constitution on my website. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading through the, the Constitution as an adult, you know, I read it in school, but I didn't think about it much. <laughs> I read through it as an adult. And this is right, when right. I was like, I was so appalled how exclusive the language was. I started counting the gender specific male pronouns. I started counting and looking at all the places where race was excluded and people were marginalized. And I actually, rather than saying we should amend this, because right, because we have amendments, but amendments are technically footnotes. Yeah. Right? You read yeah. the document and then at the end, oh, when it said, we, they should have said, or he, we should have said they, or, you know, it's at the end though. You still have to read this very sexist and racist document until you get to that point. So I said, 
this isn't some holy piece of scripture. Mm -hmm. This is a constitution written by a bunch of white supremacist, racist, and sexist men who stole a bunch of ideas from native peoples. So yeah. <laughs> why can't we edit it? Yeah. So I went through the constitution with a strike through font. And every place I saw a gender specific male pronoun, I put a strike through font and either replace it with a, a, um, a, a gender neutral pronoun or with even a proper noun. Mm -hmm. Every place like article one, section two that excludes natives or counts Africans as three fifths. Let's put a strike through font through that. We never should have said that. The 13th mm -hmm. amendment, which mm -hmm. most people think abolished slavery, but actually what it says is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Yeah, the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the. There's a clause in there that keeps slavery legal in prison. So yeah. I said, let's take that clause out. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. Period. <laughs> no yeah. clause keeping it legal in prison. Yeah, none. <laughs> and so and so I went through that and I said, you know, most Americans think this is what it says anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very clear. I'm not changing balance of powers. I'm not changing checks and balances. I'm not getting rid of all the departments. And I'm removing the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language. Yep. And there's the only thing keeping us from doing that is precedent. Mm -hmm. We've never we've never edited the document. But I, if you think of it this way, right? We we you will not find a single corporation today running off of bylaws written in the 1700s. Yes. Right? They would be sued for atrocious. <laughs> and yet we're not only are we are we governing ourselves, we have an entire Supreme Court. Let me rephrase that. We have members of our Supreme Court mm -hmm. who call themselves originalists, mm -hmm. where the goal is to interpret the document through the worldview and the mindset of the people who wrote it. Mm -hmm. That's what an originalist is. Mm -hmm. So let's not only read it with this racist, sexist, and white supremacist language, let's interpret it through the lens, the cultural and, and racial lens of the people who wrote it. And it's like, yeah. is it any wonder that today, you know, we, we have prisons filled with people of color. Is there any wonder that, you know, we, 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 it, takes, it takes nine minutes of live video and a live audience to convict a, a police officer of, of lynching a, a black man on, national, on global video? Yeah, I, and I think that, I think it's, it's, it's so logical that it makes me shake my head because literally, the, the 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 scholarly work is out there uh and, and when i saw your video it's one of the things that really prompted um i was i was applying for seminary and i was trying to decide you know what class i would take if i got in uh and your video really encouraged some of the classes i'm taking because to be honest you see this dual especially in america you see a dual relationship 
between the Bible and America. And, and like people treat the Bible like they treat the Constitution. Like you wouldn't, like you said, you wouldn't run a corporation off bylaws from the 1700s. And so there's this intermingling of, of you know, the Bible with, with politics and politics with the Bible. And then you get to a place where you have state-sanctioned slavery in our prisons and you have people of color being taken from their population center and placed in a rural area in prison, but then they're counted in that area in prison, but they're not allowed to vote because they're, you know, a felon. And so then people's representation numbers are skewed. One of my biggest aha moments about this, all of the the interconnectedness of all of it, right? Um, One of the biggest aha moments of this was when I was just like, that like that that's that's really happening like the system is not broken the system is working as it was designed and i think that's what so many people either don't understand or refuse to admit is that the system's working how it was designed in both the church yeah one of one of the most freeing days i've had as a u.s citizen is the day i acknowledge to myself that the constitution for me as a Navajo man, mm-hmm. was not written to protect me. Mm-hmm. The purpose mm-hmm. of the constitution is to protect white landowning men. Yes. It was not written to protect me. And so I need to stop expecting it to do something it wasn't created to do. Mm-hmm. And I, if I want a constitution that protects not only me, but other marginalized groups of people, we have to actually fix or change the constitution mm-hmm. because as written it wasn't designed to it's like if you have a car and you want to make it fly well you have to do some pretty radical redesign to your car yeah, exactly it's not just a tweak here and a tweak there yeah it's not it's not just about changing the oil and, and adding air to your tires you know it's like you got to do some pretty major overhaul work to this including design and aerodynamics and everything else all of and, it yeah it's so and so this is this is where i was you know during during the campaign I was very adamant of we have to address our foundations Mm -hmm. and neither of the Democrat or the Republican nominees were interested in doing that. This was very clear during um, right after George Floyd was was lynched. Yeah. Right. And and we saw the world saw this lynching Mm -hmm. online stream live nine minutes of it. Mm -hmm. And after that event. Donald Trump, okay, he went and he um, issued an executive order banning certain chokeholds, mm-hmm. okay? Joe Biden suggested that we retrain officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. Mm-hmm. These were these two white landowning men from the 1%. This was their solution to what just happened to George Floyd. Yep. And I was saying, we need to actually take this clause out of the 13th Amendment and we need to remove slavery and white supremacy from our constitution. See, what most people don't understand, not only was Abraham Lincoln a blatant white supremacist, and he stated as such throughout his entire political career, Mm -hmm. but he was actually looking for a way to constitutionally protect slavery. The day of his inauguration, in 1860, mm-hmm. there was a, an amendment that was passed by the Senate, it's called the Corwin Amendment. 
it constitutionally protected slavery in the states where it already existed. And they passed it the morning of his inauguration. And if you read his inaugural address, he states his support for that amendment. Mm -hmm. And he personally mailed that amendment out to all of the governors asking them to ratify it. They didn't ratify it. Otherwise, that would have become our 13th Amendment. Right. So when he actually, his legacy is the 13th Amendment we have, again, which doesn't abolish slavery. Mm -hmm. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so our constitution has protection for white supremacy written into it. It's yes. a constitutionally protected value in our constitution. And so I said, in response to George Floyd, we need to actually abolish slavery. Mm -hmm. Now, a few weeks later, Right, Jacob Blake was shot in the back mm -hmm. by an officer several times. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, this should have, should have satisfied both Trump and Biden because A, he was shot, not choked, and B, he wasn't shot lethally. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. was their solution to the George Floyd problem. And so it's like, now clearly what was wrong, what happened to Jacob Blake was, was still wrong, but it yeah. just shows how inadequate their response to what happened to George Floyd was because none of the criteria that they rail out as solutions were even met in the in the Jacob Blake shooting and yeah. yet it was so clearly unjust and then just I don't know if you saw this but if you watch the presidential um the presidential address on Wednesday right and then mm -hmm. the GOP response uh -huh. Tim Scott senator from the junior senator from South Carolina after the presidential address, he gave the GOP response. And in his response, he said that the United States of America is not a racist country. He said that, the black man said that in the GOP response. Yeah. Now on Friday, Joe Biden was asked about that statement in an interview on the Today Show on NBC. And he agreed with Tim Scott he said, I do not think our country is racist. What? I don't, I just don't understand how, A, how we're still having this conversation, but B, how a, a white landowning male is going to say like, oh yeah, it doesn't exist. Like, of course it doesn't exist. It never existed for you. Well, see, and this is, I, I actually... On my own social media, I do what's called my second cup of coffee. It's, okay. I do it three, four times a week. I actually sit right here. I drink my second cup of coffee of the day and I talk about whatever political events or things are going on in uh -huh. the country. And this morning, because it was yesterday, I, I learned that that Biden said oh, we're not racist either. And so I, I tweeted, I actually did, a, I, I did a, a Twitter thread on it yesterday, which has uh -huh. been kind of crazy today. And then I did my whole second cup of coffee addressing that issue. And see, here's the thing that people don't understand. So in my book, in this book, on uh -huh. Truth, we have about a chapter and a half dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. So trauma is, um, you know, if there's, I'll, I'll just explain this very briefly. There's what's known as, um, most people are aware of what PTSD is, a post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress. It's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a horrifying event. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's another trauma 
um, that uh, can be a of afflicted people, for people who experience not a single horrifying event, but a series of horrifying events. Yeah. So not just being in a battle, but living in a war zone, mm-hmm. not just being assaulted, but living in an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And that type of trauma has been demonstrated to actually be passed down from one generation to the next. Like if, yes. if you have someone who experiences that kind of trauma, you will see the symptoms of that trauma in their children and grandchildren. Absolutely. Then there's a third type of trauma known as historical trauma. Mm-hmm. So historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It's actually how psychologists understand the, the, the dissatisfaction in a broad community. Mm-hmm. And um, you see, and it was first identified in Native Americans after our history of boarding schools and removal. You mm-hmm. see in African-American communities after Jim Crow and segregation and mass incarceration and enslavement. You mm-hmm. see it in Jewish uh, communities after um, the Holocaust. You see it in Japanese American communities after the internment camps. Um, you can see this generational trauma mm-hmm. of the entire community. And so I refer to historical trauma as a multi-generational and communal manifestation of a, of, of a, a PTSD. Mm-hmm. of a post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And by understanding that trauma, right, we can actually address it better within the communities that we're working with. Yeah. But there's a there's a, another trauma that people aren't aware of. That trauma is known as PITS. P-I-T-S. It stands for okay. Perpetration-Induced Traumatic Stress. Rachel McNair is a psychologist. She wrote a book about it on the same name. And she identifies that PITS is like PTSD in almost every way, mm-hmm. except PITS afflicts the perpetrator, the person who caused it, okay. not the victim. Okay. And so I hypothesize that if PTSD has a multi-generational and communal manifestation, mm-hmm. complex nature that is afflicting people of color, it makes perfect sense to me that PITS will also have a multi-generational communal manifestation of a, of a complex nature that is the trauma that I would observe and hypothesize is afflicting white people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I engage with white America as another group of traumatized people. They're not victims of trauma, but they're experiencing it. And it, my, one of the things I say frequently is you cannot build a nation on 500 years of dehumanizing injustice yeah. without traumatizing yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so when we understand that white America is not victims of trauma, but experiencing trauma at a psychological level because of what they're standing on, mm-hmm. and you see that the first symptoms of trauma is shock and denial, mm-hmm. right? This explains a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we put forth in the book is I, I say the myth of American exceptionalism, mm-hmm. this belief that America is exceptional, mm-hmm. is the coping mechanism for a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past as well as its current racist reality. That's, yeah. So America has to believe, and that exceptionalism isn't just we're better than everyone else, it's that we are chosen by God. Mm-hmm. Right, we have a manifest destiny, we have promised land, we have God's blessing upon us, yeah. We and we have the blessing of the queen, and and so and so when we understand that, that 
right, white America, they have to believe in this exceptionalism mm -hmm. because if they are not exceptional, then they're, they're not just an average nation. They are a absolutely over-the-top genocidal mm -hmm. nation built on a history of ruthless racial oppression. Yeah. And that thought's unthinkable. And so if you want to be a politician, right, American exceptionalism is one of the most unifying themes in American politics, mm -hmm. both the left and the right agree with it. And we see it in the election, right? Donald Trump said, America is great again. Hillary yeah. Clinton said, America is great already. Mm -hmm. America's already great. Mm -hmm. Cory Booker, African-American senator from New Jersey, he was at the DNC convention in 2016. This is when we're all talking about how great we are. Mm -hmm. And in his speech, he acknowledges that the declaration calls native savages, the mm -hmm. constitution excludes women and counts mm -hmm. African just three-fifths of a person, which is very courageous because most politicians at that level don't acknowledge any of those things. And here he is globally or nationally yeah. acknowledging all three of those flaws in our foundation. But he ends that section of his speech by telling our, our, the, the, the DNC that this does not detract from America's greatness. Now, he would never say that to a room full of black people. Right. He would never say that to a room full of native people. So why did he say it? Yeah. Because if you want to get the vote and the support of white landowning men, you have to affirm their myth of exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you got, so, you got to play to them, stroke their ego with it. And so that's what he did. That's what Tim Scott was doing when mm -hmm. he gave the GOP response. And right, even Joe Biden, that's what he's doing because he got elected not by people of color. Right. He got elected on the money and the support of moderate Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Lincoln Project. Yeah. Super PAC. Hundreds of millions of dollars raised. Yeah. From Democrats and Republicans supporting Joe Biden for president. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he can't stand up on national TV and say America's racist. Yeah, no, no, he <laughs> can't. And that, that's, that's a fundamental flaw because like, you know, uh, like, like you experienced when you ran, right? Like you play to the system or, you know, your chances are, are cut down dramatically. But it's so crazy because, you know, um, you'll have to correct me if I have my dates wrong, but from what I understand, boarding schools were happening up until the 60s. Um, America is still pillaging Puerto Rico. Uh, we, you know what I mean? We've we've disenfranchised black people. We're bare, you know, we're closing our ears and eyes to it. Asian American people are being subjects of violence. We don't even want to talk about the rate at which trans women of color are being murdered. Um, and it's all happening. So, so the question is, and this is what stops me from running with politics. And I'm, I'm not even working out the script here. I'm just shooting from my gut, right? This is what stops me from participating in politics, other than the fact that I'm not sure if rural America would vote for this. Um, but is the idea like, I cannot play to the system. So for me, I'm always navigating this tension of like run for alderman or say what I'm really thinking about our mayor. Like there, there's always this tension I'm navigating. And I personally really struggle with that. 
Um, I'm not like a, a mean, aggressive person, but when it comes to logical facts and like someone's logically being inappropriate or logically being exclusionary, like I can't not say that, you know? One of the, when I, in my campaign, the 2020 campaign, again, our theme was let's build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. Mm -hmm. We announced the end of May in 2019. And we announced with a nine minute announcement video laying out my not only my analysis of the problem mm -hmm. but my proposed solutions of what we need to do to fix it a national dialogue on race gender and class fixing our foundations all these other things mm -hmm. if there was an award for the best campaign announcement video mm -hmm. our campaign would have won it hands down yeah it's still up on my website. If you go to markcharles2020.com, that yep. announcement video is still there. And anybody who took the time to watch that nine minute video were at the very least, at least open to listening to our ideas because they were so compelled by the vision that video put forth. Yeah. And a yeah. lot of people, I, I would get emails throughout the campaign from people literally in tears. Mm -hmm. I just watched your announcement video. I've never felt so hopeful through politics in my life. Mm -hmm. And I want to support your campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I, I said throughout my campaign, right? I used to be the pastor of a church. And I, throughout my campaign, because when, you, when you're running on a platform to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people, mm -hmm. your support comes from all the people. Mm -hmm. And I had a more diverse group of supporters supporting my run for president than I ever was able to garner when I was doing work in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, there's something that was incredibly beautiful about that. Right, right. Right. There's something that I'm like, this is so amazingly beautiful to see this very diverse group of people. Mm -hmm. come together to support this vision and this idea of building a nation where everybody is included yeah and it's and hard to argue the, with that like if the, you take the racism argument out of it like let's just not say the r word right but if you just present that vision who says no you can't like i i even learned when i was interacting with trolls online right i'm uh -huh. like if i can just get them to watch the video Mm -hmm. I will win this argument. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many people started out trolling us. And I just, I said, please go watch the video. Right. And they would watch it and come back to me and say, my mind's blown. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Like there's argue a, with it. There's and, no downside to this. Like I'm, I'm proving to you that no one loses when we all win. I, so I, so I, if you're still fighting with me, you're just a bigot. I just did a podcast earlier this week um, with a church in New York City, and I forget the name of the church off the top of my head right now. Um, Jackie Lewis is the pastor of the church. Okay. And they run a conference every year called, called Revolutionary Love, which I've been speaking at for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And we did a podcast, and the theme was about love. Mm -hmm. And you know, while I, I was running, I was very adamant with people. I said, I'm not the Christian candidate, right? I'm not running to to, to uh, missionize or to, to convert people to my religion. I'm not running to make America Christian. Mm 
Mm -hmm. I definitely have convictions on my faith and why I'm running and even in how I'm running, but I'm not running to evangelize or to convert right. people to my belief system. And one of the things, right, because you'll get a lot of people, especially Christians, like, oh, yeah. And the whole problem with American Christianity is it's been so embedded with empire that <laughs> people actually want to. Like, I've learned I can't, the church in its current state is incapable mm -hmm. of addressing these problems because if the church were to try to step in to fix the problems that it actually caused in our nation, their solution would be to make the nation Christian, which is yeah. what caused the problem in the first place. Exactly. Because you can't yeah. legislate those types of things. Exactly. And so one of the things when we were, we were discussing this on the podcast, and I didn't even really clarify it until after I got off the podcast and I was thinking about it on my own, but right, you can't legislate love. Mm -hmm. can't legislate that people love each other mm -hmm. but the problem is and i actually put this up on a tweet on my facebook page i said that one of the reasons the church one of the primary reasons the church fails at the command to love your neighbor as yourself is the because is because the church refuses to acknowledge the humanity of most of its neighbors yeah right yeah so let's not even talk about loving people. If we can't even agree that everybody is human, mm -hmm. we have no chance of even being able to love them. Yeah. And so while we can't legislate love, I think we absolutely can begin to legislate, we're gonna treat everybody equally. Absolutely. We're going to acknowledge the humanity of everybody who's a part of this union. Yeah. And yeah. so this is where I'm like, I actually believe that the church and in its current state is incapable <laughs> of addressing the problems that need to be addressed. Because if you want to start a theological debate in a church, go in and start advocating for the humanity of some of the most marginalized in that community. And That's I promise you, right you get a yep. massive theological debate. You get bricks thrown through your window. Not oh. that I'm speaking from experience, but. <laughs> yeah, you, it's unbelievable what yeah. happens within the church. The church can't even acknowledge people's humanity, let alone love people. Mm -hmm. And so I actually am more hopeful that we can get the nation mm -hmm. to acknowledge everybody's humanity. Yeah. Even to the shame of the church. Yeah. And then we can if we can get that done that's one of the biggest obstacles we have to our oppression and the things we're doing to each other right now is we're just not acknowledging the humanity of the people sitting right next to us or right in front of us yeah absolutely and so i i i was actually telling jackie in the pot i'm like i may be oversimplifying things but i really think the first step and unfortunately the church in its current state isn't able to take this step yeah is we need to start by just acknowledging we're all human yeah yeah and, and that's the biggest that's the one of the biggest things i run into personally um i have so much 
I have so much invested in Christendom, and and I want to hit your brain. I want to talk to you about you know just your view of Christendom as a Native American person. I want to hit that at some point later, uh, but but my whole life was steeped in evangelicalism. Like I was I was born female. Um, with uh, my dad is a pastor, and my grandpa was a pastor, and my other grandpa was a deacon, and my aunts and uncles were missionaries. And, you know, I was just steeped in it. I mean, I I played in a Southern gospel band in Southern Ohio as a straight you know straight white female. Email. Um, and then I came out and I realized that suddenly I didn't, that the same love and acceptance and privilege wasn't extended to me just as soon as people thought I was gay. Because I had people from the church coming at me before I had even made, you know, some cognitive harmony with the fact that I was gay. And the more I go along, the more I realize this, this shit's not written for me. Like I had a, a moment of revelation in my Old Testament class this year where I was dialoguing um, with a, a black lesbian. Um, and I wrote, I don't understand how the God in this passage is looking out for me. And she said, it's funny you say that because I've never understood God the way God is presented in the church to be looking out for me. And so she's a very independently spiritual person. And I feel like there's this acknowledgement of when you're a black or brown person, right? Like the, the constitution's not written to protect you the the bible's not, the pre preachers won't weren't preaching to protect you there's this sense of otherness and perhaps that sense of otherness is just is just what you said it's what keeps us it's the hurdle that keeps us from making true progress yeah chapters three and four in this book um are two chapters we added actually very much towards the end and what they do is they kind of map the journey the church took from the teachings of Jesus, who said things like, love your neighbor or love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. How we got from that to a doctrine of discovery that said, kill people who don't look like, act like, worship like, or live like you. Yeah. And that journey is a fascinating one. And it's actually the, 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 the pivot point, the crucial pivot in there is when the church decides it doesn't want to carry its cross and instead of losing its life, it wants to save it. Mm -hmm. When Eusebius <laughs> gets touched by the great persecution in 303 AD mm -hmm. and he decides, okay, this martyrdom thing is not as great as I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And he begins to prop up the emperor as the savior of Rome. Mm -hmm. in the hope of ending the persecution yeah and that pivot is actually what creates i would argue and i'm regarding the book that's where christendom is created this heresy and yeah. a fascinating thing about that right because if you read the teachings of jesus jesus was adamant his kingdom was not here on this earth yeah yeah if you want to create a christian empire your biggest obstacle is christ and so sure when, you read, when you read Eusebius's book, when you read um, uh, um, his book, The History of the, the Church, I forget the, the name's slipping my mind right now, but anyway, when you read his book, An Ecclesiastical History, mm -hmm. right, you would think if you're writing a book called Ecclesiastical History, 
because the scriptures are very clear, the history of the church won't end until the bridegroom returns, right? Yeah. And so the fact that you're writing the book is evidence that you're still on the journey. So yeah. you're just writing a preface or an early chapter in the book. And so you would assume your book would have no conclusion because it hasn't, the events to conclude the story haven't happened yet. Mm -hmm. But if you read, and Ecclesiastical History is a volume of 11 books. Mm -hmm. If you read to the last chapter of the last volume, very end of the book, you will find Eusebius absolutely has a conclusion. And his conclusion is the salvation that comes to Rome, not through Christ, but through Constantine. Mm -hmm. He literally has to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history in order to prop up the heresy of Christendom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so this is one of the things that I've, I've observed is like, you know, the, this is why the church in its current form is impotent in regards to addressing systemic and corporate sin. I actually gave a, a, a talk at um, Trinity Evangelical, Evangelical Divinity School. It's titled, Whose Blood Covers Systemic Corporate Sin? Ooh. Right? Because if you go to the church and say, I, I, I've committed this sin, I stole this, I hurt this person, right? The church will say, well, here's this guy, Jesus, he can forgive right. you. There right. may still be some consequences, but you know, you can still have life. Yeah. But if you go to the church and say, I want to deal with the system, the systemic sin of genocide of native people or the enslavement of African people or all mm -hmm. the other things that we've done as a nation, the church is going to look at you like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, 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 what? They'd have no clue. They no have, clue. No clue. And they're like, you know, can we wash your feet? Like, they don't know what to do. Yeah. And yeah. It's because it's because the church in America doesn't identify as the body of Christ, like the, the Catholics would not say to the Protestants, we're related to you mm -hmm. because of the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. They would identify their connectivity through Christian empire. Yeah. We are both churches in America. Mm -hmm. And because it identifies through Christendom and not through the blood of Christ, mm -hmm. it has no sandbox to deal with systemic corporate sin yes yeah. because it wrote christ out of its ecclesiastical history literally literally and it's so funny to me i say this all the time okay so if you if you use this analogy in, in, in future public speaking or in books i'm gonna i'm gonna let you you just gotta credit me all right but i always say that um so as someone who considers themselves to someone who wants to be intellectually honest about my faith um i'm not going to walk into a church if it requires me to check my brain at the door right i'm I, i'm i'm a spiritual person so i would love to have an emotive experience with divinity but i'm not going to check my brain for that and i feel like a lot of what happens in the modern day american church speaking kind of with an, a, a big C, overarching, no specific church, is that we have so many little non-denominational churches that aren't even connected to church history. They're not connected to anything except themselves. And they'll, they're the ones that are in prefab buildings, you know, with the Church of the Sexy Coffee Bars, like what I like to call them. And they're not connected to any history. They're just popping off. 
They, they don't even see themselves as a part of the body of Christ. They're just popping off on their own and, and putting out make faith. And it's intellectually dishonest, but it, they can be intellectually dishonest because they're, they're not connected to that church. You know what I mean? Like any, a lot of evangelicals would be like, oh, we're not, we're not like the Catholics, you know what I mean? Or even like a Methodist and we're not like the, you know, whatever, whatever. They're not like whatever, but they're, they're intellectually dishonest and where they're rooted. So you're so right. Fundamentally, they can't even have a conversation about it. Because they're just, they're so far off the mark, in my opinion. I like to call it like the McDonald's model of church. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, three points in a pun, worship songs that end on major chords, sexy coffee bar outside, and kind of prefab buildings, right? We don't even want crosses on our edifice anymore. We don't want an old historical church. Like it's, it, it's intellectually dishonest because it's not acknowledging the roots of racism that it has been built off of because they just disavow the whole system. And you can't, and I think America does that in a lot of the same ways. Like America came from somewhere. We had ideas because of something like it didn't, we, we didn't just pop out of the giant sky God and come down and form a perfect nation. That's not what happened. Well, and, and that's, that's the whole challenge. And that's the reason for writing this book, right? Mm -hmm. Is is we don't one of the, the quotes i use in the book frequently is this quote used by a, a Diné elder and a native elder in canada and he said where okay. common memory is lacking where people do not share in the same past there can be mm -hmm. no real community mm -hmm. if you want to build a community you have to start by creating common memory mm -hmm. i love that quote because it gets to the heart of our nation's problem, especially racially, but in other mm -hmm. areas too, where we don't have a common memory, we have a, a white majority. Mm -hmm. I remember this mythological history of discovery, expansion, opportunity, exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And then we have these groups from the margins mm -hmm. who have the lived history of stolen lands and broken treaties, mm -hmm. of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of mm -hmm. Indian massacres and boarding schools, of internment camps, of segregation and mass incarceration, families ripped apart at our borders, and there's no common memory, mm -hmm. right? And, and so it's not surprising that we don't have healthy community. Right. And if you yeah. listen to our politicians, right, most politicians run with a sense of nostalgia, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump wanted to make America great again. Yep. Joe Biden wanted to reclaim the soul of America, mm -hmm. right? The only people who can look back at American history with any sort of sense of nostalgia yeah. is white landowning men. Yes. There's no other group that can look back and say, oh, I remember how things were so much better 40, 50 years ago, right? Yes. LGBTQIA2S plus, you can't do that, right? No. Um, Native peoples, we can't do that. African-Americans, we can't, they can't do that. Women can't do that, right? The only group that can look back and say, oh, I long for how things were is white yeah. landowning men. Yeah. yeah. Everyone else has to say, no, we have to continue to get better. Yes. I think I remember I, uh, all these quotes are popping up in my brain as you're talking. And then I'm realizing I wrote them down from speeches I've heard you make. <laughs> uh, but I think I remember you talking in one of the speeches I walked, watched about um, the Truth and Reconciliation Project, because to reconcile implies that there was a healthy relationship to go back to. We can't reconcile in America. 
we can't yeah. reconcile because there's no, there's nothing to put an re in front of we never had conciliation you know yeah, my my whole goal is you know i i try to be as accurate as i can with my with language and you know we reconcile especially we we talk about it racial reconciliation right that's a misnomer mm -hmm. race is a human construct mm -hmm. it's not a genetic definition and in the U.S., America, race was constructed to oppress and divide. Mm. So the notion of reconciling race—you can't do it. It's not there. It was never. It was. It, it was race doesn't exist for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about we don't need racial reconciliation. We need racial conciliation. Yes. And. And you know, this is where Christians will kind of jump on and they'll say, well, but we're Christians and we have a ministry of reconciliation. I'm like, that ministry is about reconciling all things back to creator. Mm -hmm. yeah. Race, again, this is something we created ourselves. Exactly. Race is a construct. And yeah. so I advocate adamantly. It's in my, my, TED, my TEDx talk. It's in my book. It, it's in a lot of my speeches. We need a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. Yep. A conversation I would put on par with the truth and reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, yep. and in Canada. However, I would not call ours truth and reconciliation because that implies a previous harmony. So I would say we need a truth and conciliation commission. Yes, and absolutely. Sooner rather than later. I think we do too, because we can't, you, you can't, Race, just my friend Justin is blowing up the comment bar. Yes, Justin, race is fake. <laughs> uh, Justin, my friend Justin is a history teacher, and he's actually a history teacher. Uh, has a lot of native students in his uh, in his classes, and we've got to do some great work here locally. But yeah, it's it's a hundred percent true. You can't you can't get back to what you what you never had, uh, and if you had it. That, that in and of itself is privilege. And I think another thing that's really interesting is that our system is so corrupt because there's also this capitalist element in it. Whereas um, I think poor white people have a lot that they, that they could be angry about as well but you know in the earliest part of our uh, of our country when when indent white indentured servants white indentured servants were working together or i guess i should say european european indentured servants and enslaved black people were working together and uh they're like oh well we they're poor white people but we've still got to come up with some way to separate them so we'll come up with the idea of color so the poor white people and the and the slate then the black people are already working together and the government's like let's divide them because if they realize how similar you know the plight is of a poor person in a capitalist society they're going to be angry too so we've got to really separate the groups of angry people and we can't come together and have a unified conversation and have common memory when we keep needing to separate you know what i mean because po even poor white people can be like well but i'm not black you know what i mean so there's all these little ways that the system is built to keep us in little pockets of marginalization yeah. uh, but if the marginalized community came together and was like oh shoot we're all marginalized that is what is troublesome to the one percent right yeah yeah it's there is there's a lot of different ways you know um willie jennings talks about a proximity to whiteness Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I I kind of way that I kind of worked that through in my mind is if if the the epitome the the person at the absolute center is the white landowning Christian male, 
Mm-hmm. Like that, that's in the United States, this nation is their oyster, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing is centered around the white landowning Christian male. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone else is kind of in proximity to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a white Christian male, but you're just not a landowner, right? So mm-hmm. you have access to certain things. If you're yeah. a white female or if you're a native, you know, and so everyone has, and then the bottom of that group, I would say first we have African women. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're 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 not male. Mm-hmm. There's a chance they're Christian. Mm-hmm. If they work really, really hard, perhaps they can become a landowner. Yep. Um, um, and so they, they have gender and race working against them, but they, mm-hmm. they, they could possibly become and so they're more towards the bottom. The, mm-hmm. the group that I would say is the absolute bottom. Is native women living on reservations yeah you're not white you're not male if you're on a reservation there's at least a high chance you're follow your traditional religion so you're not christian right and because landowners are land reservations are held in trust native mm. nations don't own their reservations you mm. can't buy land on your reservation because the land is technically owned by the U.S. government, the tribe is only has the right of occupancy to the lands. It's held in trust, mm-hmm. so you can become a landowner. Right. So Native women living on reservations have virtually no entry point. Yeah. And one of the crises going on in Indian country is missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Yes. Yes, I've just been learning about this. The statistics are horrifying. Oh, they are. They're, every year, hundreds go missing. They're reported missing. Their families report them as missing to local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and national federal law enforcement. And yeah. not only are these women not being found, mm-hmm. but in many cases, cases aren't even being opened. And they're actually telling the families, you need to go look for themselves. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. going to touch that. Yeah, it's just now it started in Canada and it's it become very apparent. It's very present here, too. Yeah. There's missing and murdered indigenous girls who there's no record of them. Mm-hmm. There's no even though they've been reported, no case was ever opened. And it's an absolute crisis throughout Indian country. Yeah, I would listen to um, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts because I'm a basic bitch, um, but I was listening to a true crime podcast and it's all about missing uh, and presumed murdered uh, native women. It started out as it's a Canadian program and that's where I first heard of it. But this this person's whole focus of their whole podcast is is giving story and giving voice. And, and I guess you could use to turn a phrase, you could say saying their names, right? Uh, because they they still existed, right? And there's a reason we say the names of people, especially people uh, people who have passed, but especially people who have passed uh, at the hands of or because of a corrupt system. We say their names because the system's not going to say their names, and that has to change. Uh, I I was I mean I, I I uncovered another level of privilege that I didn't know I had. Let's put it that way. I uncovered another level of privilege I had when I heard that story, because it's a privilege that I don't intimately know that um, that point of marginalization. But it's just one of these things that I feel like, especially when it comes to Native populations, like we talk about race, like we'll talk about Black people, but 
but but Native Americans were literally here. They were here. Like well, and again, this goes back to the mythology of the country, right? So if you look at the the black race, mm -hmm. again, race is a human construct. Correct. So the black race was constructed through what's called the one drop rule. Mm -hmm. So if you have a single drop of African blood, you're black. Yeah. Now we have this rule because blacks were the labor force. Mm -hmm. And having a one drop rule allowed their their owners, the, the, the owners of these enslaved peoples, to breed them, to multiply them. Yeah. Even with themselves, right? As long as they had a single drop of African blood, they were still black. So <laughs> even, even the male slave owner, the white male slave owner, could impregnate, mm -hmm. possibly even rape mm -hmm. these black women and produce more people for their enslavement mm -hmm. and and so this multiplied that population mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now native peoples the american indian race was constructed in part through what's known as the blood quantum rule okay which says depending on who you marry you're full you're half you're a quarter you're an eighth you're a sixteenth and you're bred out of existence mm -hmm. now why do we have this rule well because the mythology of our country is these lands were empty we discovered them we have treaty obligations to native peoples. Mm. We have this horrific history of genocide against them. Yes, we do. And so we actually don't want to even know they're here. Mm -hmm. And so the blood quantum rule allows the country to breed native peoples out of existence mm. to wipe their hands. And, and you see this, right? You Even, if, even yeah. if you look at the stats on the CDC website, you will find that in many categories, Native peoples have a higher rate of being shot or killed by police officers than Black people. Really? Wow. A higher percentage. Mm -hmm. Our killings just never make the news. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that was the, the point of privilege, or I guess just greater level of awareness that I gained too, was like, Yo, it, 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 it actually can get worse. Like they can just shoot you and not report it. You know what I mean? Like, wow. It was, it was, it's horrific. The, the stories, right? I, I won't go into them right now because they're, they're triggering for a lot of people. Yeah. But the stories of what happened and, and how they do, they literally just get ignored. Mm hmm um, and our nation just said, yeah, we're not, we don't want to talk about these things. We don't want to have these, these parts of the conversation. And, and this is, so this is the challenge that we're facing as a country is, you know, I, I said this throughout my campaign. I say this in all my lectures about the doctrine of discovery is we have this history. We don't know how to talk about. Yeah. We don't know what to do with it. And we have the majority group, the white males who because of their trauma are in their state of denial mm -hmm. they are doing everything they can to keep that conversation from ever even happening mm -hmm. and, and this is where you know i even today on my second cup of coffee live stream where i was addressing i i spoke directly to white landowning men in the mm -hmm. united states mm -hmm. and i basically said your insistence on perpetuating the myth of exceptionalism, your insistence on keeping yourself centered, your insistence on suppressing the stories and everything else that, that's happened is damaging the mm -hmm. nation. Mm -hmm. 
it's damaging the nation and even yourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what makes me so mad. And this is one of the reasons I was so, when I, when I read the report that Joe Biden stated America wasn't racist. Yeah. Now I knew, and I've been saying this throughout the entire campaign, he doesn't have the courage and he's not going to address anything at a systemic level. He's all about maintaining the status quo. And I've known this about him. Yeah. But when I heard his actual denial and I heard him state on the interview, our country, America is not a racist country. I had an emotional response that I think surprised even me. Mm-hmm. Because I, was, I never expected him to respond to that question positively. Mm-hmm. And, and as I kind of sorted through those emotions, I realized it was, it was um, a lot of that emotion was directed at the group that's keeping itself in the center. Now, and then the, so the challenge is Joe Biden's part of that group, right? He's a white landowning male from the 1%. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, so he's actually a part of that same group. He is. And, and even though he's saying he's for change and he's going to say the right words and he's going to nominate this diverse cabinet and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, he's actually working counter to all of that, mm-hmm. where he, he doesn't have the courage even to say to his own peers, yeah. other white landowning men from the 1%, guys were racist. Yeah. Got to deal with it. Yeah. He doesn't have the kind of courage. Wow. Can you imagine how explosive that kind of conversation would be? And I under, and this is a, this comes back to why I can't be a politician right now, is I understand the political strategy. Like the, like the political strategy was get a milk toast Democrat in so that we can get Trump out. And then we maybe can go from there if we want to. But really, that's not going to create change. And so I always go back and forth between, you know, like in terms of politics, how do you, how do you mix mess up that balance of the two party system? You know. Well, so, so here's the thing, and I, I have to get going in a few minutes here, but no. let, me, let me talk about this for a moment. So, we have to recognize the purpose of the two party system mm-hmm. is not to bring change; mm-hmm. it's actually to maintain the status quo, and they work together very intentionally to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, if you want to run for president in the two party system, mm-hmm. right? Um, you announce up to two years early, right? Yeah. Now, and this is fascinating. So after the civil rights movement, the the election in 1868, 1968, it actually was a fairly violent nomination season. There was a lot of protests and violence around um, the, the, the nomination of the presidency from the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, to avoid that in the future, they passed a law that said, or they, they made a, they decided to set a standard that Iowa was gonna be, become the first caucus state. Mm-hmm. So in 1972, Iowa became, now Iowa is the fifth whitest state in the country. And it has the highest percentage of private lands. Mm. Now, New Hampshire 
out of precedent for over 100 years has been the first primary state in every election. They are like the third highest white population state, mm -hmm. and they have the highest rate of home ownership. Mm -hmm. Today, Iowa has a state law requiring it to be the first caucus state, and New Hampshire has a state law requiring it to be the first primary state. In other words, if another state sets their primary before Iowa or New Hampshire, their right. state law mandates that they set theirs earlier. Now, because the two-party system adheres to that, mm -hmm. they literally force their candidates to campaign for a year mm -hmm. before the first primary to white landowning men. Yeah, which is who lives in Iowa, New Hampshire, and so the Democratic Party this year, right? They had the largest, most are the most diverse group of candidates they've ever had. Members of LGBTQIA2S plus, more women, more people of color, yep. very diverse pool. Yeah, in the primary season, Dr. Jill Biden actually acknowledged that her husband was not the best on the issues, mm -hmm. but she said, "You have to look at who's going to win, and you have to somehow." get on board with the fact that my husband's going to win. And so you have this in the in the Democratic Party, you have this very now the Democrats have a diverse pool at their base. They have a diverse base, right? And so they get diverse candidates who run. Now, they almost always whittle it down like they did this year to mm -hmm. the most status quo white landowning male from the 1%. Yeah. So which is what they did, right? Yeah. First, they started moving. They started moving some people of color off of the debate stage. Mm -hmm. Then they changed their rules, right? So that um, um, uh, Bloomberg could get into the debate, yeah. even though he didn't have enough fundraising. Yeah. So they're, they're literally like they're making rules to bring in white people and to exclude native people or uh, people of color. Yeah. And and then um, so when they finally a lot arrive on their white landowning mail from the one percent now their biggest fear is is that their voting base is going to wander yeah because now they have a candidate that doesn't look like them doesn't represent them doesn't doesn't understand them and so in in the whole struggle between the democrats and republicans the 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 republicans are terrified of voters right yes. they are yes. explicitly racist, sexist, and white supremacist, their base isn't growing. Mm -hmm. And so the more people who vote, the worse off the Republican candidate. And so the Republicans are terrified of voters. Yeah. So they're passing laws to keep people from voting. Yeah. The Democrats are afraid of third party independent candidates. Mm -hmm. Because once they whittle their pool down to a white landowning male from the 1%, they're afraid their base is going to wander. Yeah. And so the group that's filing lawsuits and making rules hard to get people off of the ballot are Democrats. Yeah. So right now, right, we have all this hubbub going on because there's rules being passed, laws being passed in, in Georgia and other places, yeah. limited voting, right? Yeah. And the Democrats have their For the People Act. Yeah. HR1, which they're trying to move through Congress, which they say is a voting rights act. So here's one fascinating thing. In that act, in the 1970s, they passed a law um, as part of the Voting Reform Act that said um, the major parties, national parties, can directly support 
or expend money on behalf of their general election candidate. Mm -hmm. And they can spend up to two cents for every age eligible voter in the country. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, there were 239 million age eligible voters in the US, which means the two parties could expend or donate to their candidates $5 million, mm -hmm. okay? That, that's a law passed in 1970. So as part of their reform act this year, their For the People Act, they amended that law and they increased the amount to a flat amount. And now the parties can give up to $100 million to their candidates. What? We went from 5 million. Now remember, Democrats, hate competition. Yeah. Republicans hate voters. Yeah. So the Democrats are addressing the, the, the voter problem. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is they're they're giving the two party system candidates an extra one hundred million dollar advantage over who? Yeah. Third party independent candidates. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. You have to remember, neither side has a value for democracy. No, it's they a value both for winning, right? Are about maintaining the status quo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Neither Absolutely. side is interested in making systemic change. They both want to maintain the status quo, and Absolutely. they work in partnership. And so, even yeah, it's it's once you understand the purpose of these parties, it's like it makes perfect sense what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, 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 to, to sway, I guess it's not even to sway from like the more spiritual or theoretical conversation, but I think what really, really threw a lot of people this year was like, you know, like black women coming through in Georgia, like that upset a balance that they thought they had, you know, figured out. And so there was kind of this, um, there was this, this kind of, like you said, the more people vote, the, the less people are voting Republican. And I feel like that really, that push there made a huge difference. And I feel like my biggest hope is that we can keep inspiring people that are diverse to work together. Because I feel like when you start to separate people who are diverse and they start to work apart, then you really break down your base, right? But if you can get really diverse people to, to come together behind a cause, uh, to come together behind a candidate, you can make a big difference. And I feel like that's what we need to push forward. And that goes back, this is why everything in my brain connects, it's all like a spider web, but that goes back to your idea of creating, uh, uh, the idea you cited of creating common memory, right? Because if you know someone, you care about them when you vote, right? Typically, unless you're soulless and super racist, which happens. But like, if you know someone, right? then you can have hard conversations. And when you have that common memory together, you can move forward together. And I would hope that that we can facilitate that somehow. You know what I mean? That I think that's the real work that we have to do, right? To move ourselves forward. And that's where I would say, I, I don't disagree with that, but what I'm saying is the two-party system oh, yeah. does not exist yeah. to bring this kind of change. If you- Not at all. If we want the two-party <laughs> system to bring about this change, yeah. We're going to be waiting another 250 years. Exactly. And yeah. so this is where we have to, and this is why Iran is independent in the last yeah. election is because yeah. I'm like, yeah, the two-party system, I, I wanted to run in the general election. Yeah. 
And I knew because of how the primaries work and you have to campaign for a year and a half in Iowa and New Hampshire, mm -hmm. I knew the Democratic or Republican Party was never going to even let me get to that point. Absolutely. Yeah, they would never let you get that far. That, that that's exactly they they removed all their people of color from their campaigns long yeah. before they got even and so this is this is what we have to recognize that the this the system we're being told we're like we're told the democrats depending on what circles you live in right if, if your world's defined by fox news or cnn they're both partisan yes. um um bullhorns but yep. um you know if you live if you live in the cnn msnbc corporate America world, mm -hmm. right? You're told that the Democrats are the good guys and the Republicans are the bad guys. And yet the I actually spend the majority of my time critiquing the Democrats. Yes. It's not that the Republicans aren't problematic. It's just they're so simplistic, right? They're explicitly racist, sexist, and white supremacist. Yes. They don't try to hide it. Yeah, the Democrats are implicitly racist, sexist, white supremacist, and so you have to kind of uncover it like you're peeling an onion. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you do. You do. It's so true. Mark, I have to say, I could talk to you for 17 more hours and not be bored, but I want to honor your time. And I also want to make sure uh, we get a chance to put your information out. So I want to just ask you one last question, yeah. uh, and then we'll have you put your information out. So if, uh, if you could theoretically just take one idea or concept or or sentence or paragraph and make sure that everyone who heard this episode remembered this one thing what would it be nice easy question right <laughs> i'm going to take it again back down to the very very simplistic mm -hmm. which is we need to work hard mm -hmm. to acknowledge the humanity yes of everybody yes if we can't acknowledge the humanity of our neighbor mm -hmm. we're never going to be able to love them we're never going to be able to to do good yes. for them and so i that's you know in my in my work where my my goal really is to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people yeah and that starts not with legislating my religion mm -hmm. not with even saying we have to love everybody it starts with we have to begin with the bare minimum mm -hmm. of acknowledging the humanity of everybody not only the people who are very different from us but even those who we would be told are our enemies yes yeah Right. If you can acknowledge the humanity of the most marginalized in your community, but you cannot acknowledge the humanity of the opposing party, mm -hmm. you're still going to have problems. Exactly. You are. Yeah. And so I think this is where we need to start. We need to we need to start by acknowledging and teaching ourselves to acknowledge the humanity of everybody we come in contact with. Yes. And to bring that to the very beginning of what you said started acknowledging where we are and, and the people that were here before us and I, that's that's why i love um the way that you that, that you started your speech and really i could listen to you talk for a lot longer so but i will uh, i'll let you go to your you know your personal life and such but before you head out would you be able to let people know how they can get in contact with you or your work if they would like to 
Yes. So um, my website is wirelesshogan.com, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com. And Wireless Hogan is my username on almost all social media. It's my username on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Um, and then on Facebook, I have a verified account on Facebook and it's Mark Charles Wireless Hogan. But if you just search Mark Charles on Facebook, I'm the Mark Charles with the blue check by my name. Um, I have a personal account there too. I don't use that one very frequently at all. Almost everything goes through my verified professional account on Facebook. I live stream probably three or four times a week. I watch the sunrise most mornings and live stream that through Facebook. Um, I have my second cup of coffee several times a week and I talk about issues going on. And I also jump on a lot of times just to go more in depth on other issues that are going on around the country. So I'm working very hard yeah. Um, right now to continue to move these conversations forward, yeah. to teach this history and to help people kind of adjust their paradigm to what we need yeah. to do to, to do the work ahead. Absolutely. I have to thank you so much. I can't, I can't explain to you how much I've learned uh, and how influential, uh, you know, the things that I've read and heard from you have been. So I have to thank you. If zero other people watched this video, it would have still have been world changing for me, uh, but we're way beyond that. So thank you, Mark, for your time. And thank you, everybody thank you. who has watched. And if people go onto my website at wirelesshogan.com, you can actually order signed copies of my book. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it's on the front page of my website and you can order a signed copy of my book. We get them in the mail pretty quickly, but I'm doing everything I can. This book is a great way to teach the history, not only of the church, but yeah. also of the country. Yeah. If anybody wants to get me a birthday present, my birthday's in August, then you can find the book on his website. So I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> um, this has been conversations where we come together regularly and intentionally to have spiritually minded conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everybody's voice matters at the conversation. And we will see you here next week, everybody. Mark, you have a great day. Everyone else, we'll see you back around on conversations. Don't forget to uh, check for this also on our YouTube channel and on Apple Podcasts. You'll find the recap of this there as well. Have a good night, everybody. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.